Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Unlikable Female Characters, the podcast featuring feminist thriller writers in conversation about women who don't give a damn if you like them. I'm Kristen Lepianca, and I'm super excited to be here today with John Copenhaver. Hi, Kristen. How are you? I'm good. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me on. I'm so excited. I love this podcast. Well, that is that is amazing to hear. And I want to, to tell you that you are uh, officially the, the first man that we have had on our podcast with the exception of our April Fool's episode featuring the charming uh, and fictitious Jonathan Mallory Davis uh, who <laughs> was actually Lane's partner um, who it was amazing at performing the worst possible male author we could invent oh my god yes <laughs> <laughs> but other than that that we have only had women so you are uh, you are groundbreaking here I am. I'm. I'm honored to to be on. Truly, <laughs> <laughs> I'll try not to be the worst male male writer, <laughs> podcast host, or or, or guest in the hat. So okay. So I'm super excited to to chat with you today about your new book. But first, let's uh, let's be official, and um, I will give you your formal introduction. So John Copenhaver's historical crime novel, Dodging and Burning, won the 2019 McCavity for Best First Mystery Novel and garnered Anthony Strand Critics' Barry and Lambda Literary Award nominations. Copenhaver writes crime fiction reviews for Lambda Literary in a column called Blacklight, co-hosts on the House of Mystery radio show podcast, and is a six-time recipient of Artist Fellowships from the DC Commission on Arts and Humanities. Um, so welcome. You have quite the credentials. <laughs> I, yeah, I got to sound impressive, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm like, I have I have two cats. Like, my bio is sad. I know. <laughs> I always, I'm always like, do I put the dogs in the bio or leave them out? Do I put them in or leave them out? I don't know. I think Jeff's in the bio now. So. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, and you have a brand new book out, right? It's out already? Yeah, it came out last Tuesday. Um, yes. In my second novel. Yes, The Savage Kind, which is absolutely magnificent. Um, I absolutely loved it. Do you want to sort of just tell us about the book? Yeah, so um, it's my um, kind of take on the femme fatale character. It's a sort of sympathetic coming-of-age story that I've always wanted her to have. Um I've always loved the femme fatale character, but also been annoyed and and angered by her treatment. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, to make better sense of that, I really wanted to write a book where we had characters, uh, female characters doing, um, you know, transgressive things, but with some understanding of why they might be doing those transgressive things. Um, and I feel like often this sort of traditional femme fatale character is um, one who is, uh, you know, does bad things, doesn't really have much of a backstory, and is mm -hmm. almost always punished for her uh, her misdeeds. And I wanted to play with that and turn it around a little bit with the savage kind. So, and then I made them teenagers because why not? <laughs> <laughs> What's better than than transgressive teenagers? Right. Exactly. <laughs> And these, and the, particularly, I should mention that the book is set in 1948, so they're transgressive teenagers in the past. So, right, um, which is uh, interesting to sort of always interesting to play with that idea. Yeah, I really like this idea of like the origin story of the femme fatale. Um, we've talked on this podcast before about 
the idea of origin stories and how like we're having there's kind of a moment now of like fairy tale villainesses getting an origin story like you know this the recent Cruella yes. Deville movie with the weirdest fucking movie ever made. Oh my god! <laughs> I read an article Crime Reads about it. <laughs> passionately about it. It's so wild! Like what? But like, um, I think it's kind of you know part of a a trend where like the the villainess starts out as like a nice person and something happens to her to make her wicked. But, you know, in the savage kind, these two teenage girls, Judy and Philippa, Mm -hmm. um, they, they kind of start out a little bit transgressive. Like they don't start out as innocent lambs. They start out, you know, being a little bit bad and that's, what's so fun about them. Yeah. And I think that, um, you know, one of the biggest issues I have with what, Disney's doing and and maybe other places do is they're sort of taking the bite out of these characters um and that seems to actually be removing some of their complexity I think and yes. um I, I really didn't want to do that I, I wanted characters who have um you know we enter the scene they they have these different levels and dimensions going on but that and then sort of the story exposes and I guess maybe digs up some of those impulses and 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 darker elements. Um, although Judy is pretty dark from the outset, but um, <laughs> <laughs> but you know I think that you know the biggest problem is just like essentially kind of removing that complexity. And mm-hmm. it seems to it's almost like you know especially with like Cruella, um, which was by the way a gorgeous movie to look at. Oh yes, it was. It was like absolutely beautiful with the. The, just the whole like the costuming and this just yeah. the set of it like absolutely gorgeous the story was nonsense yeah, um, it was a bonker <laughs> story and, um and, and gorgeous costumes but i mean even the acting was was really fun but i was like mm-hmm. back from this thing and, and you pull back all the you know the the gorgeous costumes and the, and the fun acting what where do you have left is kind of like pretty tepid and bizarre <laughs> <laughs> yes <laughs> Yes, exactly. Uh, they could have they could have made something amazing with like yeah. you know that concept of you know that particular character. Like in in the 101 Dalmatians, Cruella Deville has absolutely no depth. She's just like wicked oh. mean lady. That's it. That's totally it. Uh, so like the idea of creating a backstory could have been really cool, but they like they wussed out. They didn't go there. They just made it like weird. Um, but I definitely think that you know when they <clears throat> sort of reframe these characters um maleficent is another one that i think they did this too where it's like started out as perfectly nice and normal and then became wicked as a response to the actions of people around her um and that's just no fun at all they completely take away the agency of the character by by doing that and like just sort of take the teeth away you know and make it very ultimately harmless uh, and you know, and that's that's not fun. We want to read about ladies who are bad, and they've always been bad. Yeah, it's not fun, and, and it has. I, I don't know if this makes any sense, but it feels a little bit like dehumanizing. Um, yes, I, you know, it's like you're 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 taking this of when you remove that those dimensions, you're taking away some of their humanity. You're making them an idea or a fantasy, and I think. It's unfortunate because, like, I feel like I go, I go to the movies, I read books because I want to see complex characters, not types. You know, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, how about t- tell us a little bit about the two uh, teenage girls at the heart of the story? How they're similar? How they're different? How they meet? Yeah. So, um, Philippa is well. First of all, they're both seventeen-year-olds. Philippa has just arrived in Washington D.C. Just moved there. Um, so she's very much out of her element. Um, in a lot of ways, Philip is a very traditional teenager from the time period with, you know, bows in her hair and, um, saddle oxfords and all that. And, mm-hmm. um, but she, um, never knew her mother. Her mother died in childbirth, which is adds sort of layer of complexity to her. And she, in some ways is an outsider because she's new to town. And then, um, she, uh, doesn't connect with the, the kids at school except for she spots Judy and Judy like cuts a wide swath. <laughs> <laughs> she 
like intense and has like like this bobbed hair, which is not period at all. Uh, she's clearly making a statement, and the statement is, you know, get get away from me. Um, and, uh, but they connect, and they connect really through literature and their mutual adoration of their sort of sublime English teacher, Miss Martins, um, who is a kind of modeled after Miss Jean Brody. Um, mm-hmm. If you know, you know, you know that 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 book and that movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, she sort of weaves sort of a seductive, like in that sort of sense that like, you know, literature and music can be seductive, especially to sort of the heightened emotional, um, you know, points of view of these teenage girls. Um, and um, initially, Philip was very like into like the high literary stuff, but she finds out her teacher reads gasp detective novels. And, mm-hmm. <laughs> and she borrows, her teacher lets her borrow one because she's convinced she'll like it. She reads it. Of course, she likes it because, of course. And um, so she goes to return it, but her teacher's being attacked in the shadows. And she's not really sure what she's seen. Was her teacher being uh, uh, sexually assaulted or raped? Is, she, is it something else going on? It just kind of blows her mind and she freaks out and flees. Um, and then, like, while this is going on, there's another classmate named Cleve who is kind of the sulky high school boy who is throwing a lot of hostility their direction for no reason they can discern and a, and a, and a lot of hostility towards the teacher. So mm-hmm. soon after that happens, he, he goes missing and they team up to try to solve this crime. But like one of the things I was really interested in doing is having the two girls um, like in the process of solving the crime, start committing crimes like yes. like one has to kind of one kind of follows the other and they get deeper and deeper into these sort of transgressive behaviors like i think whenever amateur detectives always have to break the rules kind of to solve the crime so what if some of those rules start to be really problematic right. um, <laughs> um so you know and then it kind of goes on from there but i, I really one of the things i wanted to start with this sort of the, the, the sort of good girl, bad girl dichotomy. And then in, mm-hmm. on both sides up in it, um, you know, Judy is not as bad as she seems and Philippa may have some darkness that, um, you know, is not necessarily apparent, um, you know, unless you're reading really closely <laughs> initially. Right. So, um, you know, I, I had a lot of fun doing that. Yeah. They're, they're very distinct uh, characters and they have very distinct voices. They're both, um, protagonists in the story sort of alternating back and forth. Uh, and I really, I really love seeing sort of the difference in their voices and their perceptions of things. Um, another really interesting thing that you have going on with this book is it's all kind of framed by an anonymous narrator uh, sort of looking back at the past and it's like a really interesting um, version of like the unreliable narrator, which is like had its had its moment for sure in thrillers and crime fiction. Um, but I think, you know, a lot of the time when a book employs that it's like you don't realize at first that the, the narrator is unreliable. The, the really fun thing about the way you do this is like it sort of starts out by saying, like, I'm not going to tell you who I am and you're not going to know what's true. Um so it's a really, you know, it's a fun, disorienting place to to start. What made you decide to to frame the story with that? Well, I mean, in a lot of ways, it was a response to exactly what you're describing. I mean, we have, you know, particularly in our genre, we love to play with the unreliable narrator. And, you know, of course, it's been done really well. And I do enjoy it when it's done really well. Mm-hmm. It really annoys me when it's not. But yeah, um, I think that... I was like, well, what's what's the next turn of the screw with the unreliable narrator? Oh, well, what if we just announce, we say we're unreliable? And right. so I'm going to challenge the reader saying, hey, I'm unreliable, but you're going to believe me anyway. You know? <laughs> um, yeah. And I think that um, I really wanted to play with that, um, you know, have fun with that. Uh, you know, she even sort of says, like, dear reader, you know, <laughs> stuff like that. <laughs> Well, you know, so I think that um, I, I, I just thought it would be a lot of fun to toy with with the reader that way. I mean, essentially, unreliable narrators are toying with the reader anyway. I'm just sort of saying, hey, I'm, I'm doing it, you know. Um, I think also, 
and this has been true for both my books. Um, you know, I'm really interested in the writing process and writers and, and the way, you know, it's terrible. Like writers writing about writers, but you know, there's something about that, you know, constructing something that is always a manipulation. And so there's definitely right. that going on too. Like she's sort of saying, Hey, I'm, I'm constructing this for you um, because I have to, and that, you know, I'm going to lie to tell the truth. Um, occasionally I might tell the truth to lie <laughs> as well. <laughs> right. Um, and, and, you know, or to manipulate. And so I think, you know, I just, I love playing with that. I thought it was really fun. It was one of the most fun parts to write about the book. In fact, I think. Yeah. Like that makes a lot of sense. It is really fun when you can like explore that kind of thing. And as writers, like we are essentially the unreliable narrators all the time in our work. Um, we're the ones pulling the strings. So it's sort of, it's cool to examine the way a character might pull the strings while we're also pulling the character strings. It's all very meta. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, in the Savage Kind, after, after this classmate goes missing, uh, the, the investigation that Judy and Philippa embark on goes to some really dark places and you have some, some very, very dark um, themes and some amazing twists in this book. I feel like, I feel like it could get very spoilery. So I'm trying to be really careful <laughs> <laughs> because there are like some, there are some twists on twists on twists, which I absolutely love. Um, but yeah, it's, it's just like a very immersive and compelling book. I read it so fast oh, and I was like, what is going to happen? What on earth is, what, <laughs> what is he doing? What is happening? Uh, really, really, really fun. What made you decide to set it at that sort of moment in history, um, the late 1940s? Um, so I think, um, well, there, a lot, uh, there's lots sort of going into that particular uh, moment um, in, in history. First of all, you know, it's post-war. <clears throat> and so there is a lot of cha social change going on and, and not great social change. Um, first of all, uh, you know, women who gain, gained some agency during the war, um, that's being closed down. Uh, what, you know, they could do professionally, how they solve themselves independently. Um, you know, we're, we're gearing up for the 1950s when, you know, particular roles for women were very limited. It was like you're, you know, if you're not a housewife, then you're, you have to live in a city and do, you know. <laughs> right. You know? And then even those professions were very limited. And so um, that and then, of course, you know, my characters um, are, you know, exploring their sexuality and mm -hmm. uh, and, you know. I, and I think discovering that they do not fit into the heteronormative framework. I think certainly that Philippa is, is a lesbian. I think Judy is bi, um, you know, they're young, so they're still in, in the process of figuring this out. And um, I think I was interested because uh, I should add that my um, overall project here is to do two more books. This is one of uh of a trilogy and I wanted to pursue these, their growth through the 1950s into the 1960s. And what that would mean for anyone in the LGBTQ community in the fifties was a terrible time. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, of course this, you know, but that's makes for great fiction, like what they have to struggle against. Um, so you know, I think 1948, post-war stuff is just fascinating to me for that reason. Um, also, I think there are some connections to today. Uh, you know, the shifting from more openness to to more closed political environment, you know, mm -hmm. certainly it's not exactly the same, of course, but, you know, I think there, there are resonances with that time period. Um, I think the other reason is it's just a fascinating time in terms of art, like, you know, femme fatale was at her in films right. at her height at that time period. Um, and I think some of the best characters, femme fatales, are most sort of compelling, I guess, were, I think, from films around that time. I'm a huge film buff, so I enjoyed that as well. But yeah, I, I mean, I think that that's really kind of what, I, what I'm after here. Um, 
let's choose in that time period. For whatever reason, I, it's so weird that I ended up here and as, you know, two books in the late set in the late 1940s. I'm <laughs> not that for myself. <laughs> right. Yeah, well, you got to tell the stories that want to be told. Like, we're powerless. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm really excited to, to hear that this is sort of the first book of a trilogy about these characters. Yeah? Yeah, yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, so I actually, <laughs> believe it or not, believe it or not, I've, I've, completely outline the other two books um you know wow. for what it's worth because you know you always the outlines always only last you know they i just always break my outline <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> for sure <laughs> but yeah yeah because i realized at some point i'm like oh my gosh if this thing's gonna get published then i'm gonna figure out what's in the next two because there's like <laughs> threads and there are some unanswered questions i think um in the savage kind that i do intend to sort of weave through the others um and and they're separate stories too and uh, the second book is a major gay character that comes in the scene that I, I, I'm really excited to write. Um, and so, uh, yeah, so, and I'm still toying in both books with the idea of like how writing plays into this whole, their journey as well. Um, right. so, yeah, yeah. That is awesome news. So since this is a podcast that uh, a lot of writers listen to, let's talk writing process a little bit. Is it your usual process to outline? Uh, so my process is always a little messy, but it tends to be that our, and, and, you know, the fact that I've outlined these two other books is a, a step away from my usual process. So I should okay. say, that. but usually I write, I have a scenario, I have characters, um, I have some scenes and I write into them and then, you know, I probably write, you know, pretty linearly until about you know, page 70 to a hundred. And then I'm like, Oh my God, I got to figure this thing out. <laughs> and then there's always something in both books. There's always something at the end. That I'm like, Oh my God, I didn't see that. And I go back, I kind of have a, a moment of like epiphany that I was really writing this other sort of this other thing and major twists in both books came from that sort of weird subterranean, you know, subconscious play. So um, you know, I guess, um, I, I do think outlines are very useful. Um, I, especially mystery writers probably encourage mystery writers to, <laughs> to think about doing that. Um, I mean, heavily plotted stuff. I don't know if you think that's true, Kristen or not, but I certainly think it would be hard to just, you know, kind of do a mystery novels one after another by the seat of your pants. But I mean, maybe, Maybe so. Maybe. I mean, I don't know. What do you do? Or do you do that? Or So I, um, whenever anyone asks about my process, I'm like, well, my process is just like a pile of garbage. Don't even ask me. What my <laughs> process is. Like, I don't, I don't even know. Like, all I know is eventually at some point a book comes out. That's, that's it. It's, it's a, it's a mystery. But um, <laughs> I, I have found that the outlining to some degree is incredibly useful. Uh, but I, I always break the outline that I write. And when I, when I say outline, I mean, it's like a very, very loose sketch, like no more than one to two pages. Mm -hmm. uh, I know some writers do crazy detailed outlines, like 75 or a hundred pages of outline, which just like blows my mind. Whenever I hear someone talk about their really detailed outlines, I'm like, what? <laughs> I don't even know. I don't, I don't, what? But um, How does that when happen? I, Right. It's just like, why, why, why wouldn't you rather write a hundred pages of the book? Yeah. Um, but yes, when I, when I have tried to, to do really detailed outlines, I have always found myself in a situation where like, I'm, I'm like, I stick to the outline too much, even if I get a better idea. And I think the real magic of writing is where things occur to you as you're doing it that weren't part of your original plan. So like a, a very strict outline is just like I basically shackle myself to it and write the completely wrong book. Um, but you know, if I, I, it's good to have like a, a vague roadmap or at least a flashlight, um, so you can see what's up ahead a little bit. Um, but I typically know like how the story is going to start and how it's going to end, it's just how it's all going to get there that I don't know. Um, and I like to you know, see what develops because that's where, that's where the fun stuff is, I think, uh, in just sort of like letting the characters surprise you and, and seeing what comes out rather than like trying to predict what the story you're telling is supposed to be about. Because like, I, I don't always know what the story I'm telling is about until 
it's mostly done, you know, <laughs> like you think you're yeah. telling one story, but it's like, actually I'm telling a different story and like, it didn't occur to me, but it's really, you know, this, this theme is present throughout the entire book. And, you know, writers, like we can be really dumb sometimes like that. Like we, we, we write a book with like really like clear themes and have no idea that we're doing it until it's over. And then it's like, Oh, huh. Cool. <laughs> No, I think you're right. I think you're right. I think that's exactly it, though. It's almost like an excavation of our own, like, I don't know, imaginations or subconscious or something. Because mm -hmm. I, I think, you know, I, 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 I do get a little suspicious about authors who, um, like, stick too much to their outline. It's not so much that there's anything wrong with outlining. It's just, like, being a slave to it. Right. Um, or, you know, or, you know, I think that just, I, it's not something that I, I, I don't think I would write a very good book if I did that, frankly. Um, but, you know, at the same time, I think if I didn't use any outline, um, it would probably take me 20 years to write a very good book. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It would take forever. There would be like 200,000 words on the cutting room floor by the time yeah. all was said and done. Cause you had like gone off, you know, in the completely wrong direction for like, decades during the process and it's like oh this was all wrong um <laughs> but I also feel like you know it's even though mysteries are like very plot driven obviously uh I tend to really gravitate towards the characters in books and books with really strong characterization are going to grab me um faster than like any fancy you know plot showing off is going to and I think that you know to really know your characters you have to be in their heads. You have to be writing them. And in order to really know how they're going to react in situations, you have to like, you have to know them. Right. So it's difficult to like know exactly what these people are going to do in terms of a plot sense. If you haven't yet gotten a good understanding of who they are as people. So like, it's very, I think I would find it really hard to write like events in a story without knowing the characters uh, unless, unless, unless someone is like doing a hundred page outline and a 300 page character study first, in which case it's just like, wow, I don't, I don't even know. <laughs> right, right. No, I mean, you're right. You're hundred percent right. Cause it's not just about like what you, the puppet master thinks is going to happen, but it's the choices that characters make and, um, which then makes things convincing. It's like mm -hmm. that verisimilitude thing where you're, you really do have to convince the reader that this is you know believable um, or at least plausible and to do part of doing that is that the characters seem like they're making choices that they would make you know right um, and uh, you do that by knowing characters really well um and i think that if you don't um you know get to know them in some way either by writing into them or you know, I guess doing like dossier or something beforehand, then, you know, you are, um, you're going to get wooden characters, you're going to get types. Yep. And I think, I think you can tell when you're reading something or watching something where you have characters acting really inconsistently, it's just very, very obvious that the focus was on the story and not on the characters. And, that's like a real, like that really takes you out of the story and ruins your enjoyment of it when character is suddenly doing something that like as a, as the audience, you're like, no, that's not, that's not what this character would do here. But yeah, it happens all the time. I think one thing I worry about some is that, um, that when I hear writers are under a lot of pressure to, you know, pump out books, um, I think this is something the industry may be doing to the art form and unintentionally create that, that problem. Because I think, um, you know, I'm not a very fast writer. I have, you know, a huge respect for writers who produce often and, and uh, produce, you know, good works, but sometimes it's not, you know, maybe that's not what every author really needs. And so mm -hmm. you're probably an author who can't work that fast normally. Um, and then they're, 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 what they're probably going to do is not know their characters very well, rely on an outline and yeah. drop something subpar when you probably they could produce something much better if they were given a little more time and space. Uh, now there's some writers that just are gifted and can crank the stuff out gorgeously, you know, yes. year after year. 
um, and or have like the right situation where they're not having to work to or, or what have you. Uh, but I think that it's hard. It's hard. And I, I hate that sometimes industry might do that to some writer because I feel like at times I, I've read books and thought, I think this is a better, this person is a better writer than their situations allowing them to be. You know? yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think the same could be true of like the our genre's kind of obsession with the final twist. And sometimes yeah. you'll see there's a book where there's like, an unnecessary amount of twists. Like they, you can see where they've been inserted rather yeah. than like sort of coming organically out of the story and having it, you know, feel like, of course, this is what this has been about all along. Sometimes it's like they, they were just like, well, got to put in another one. And like, yeah. it's, it's okay for a book to not have the final gasp sort of twist the way, right. you know, <laughs> like the, the, Obviously, on, on this podcast, we love Gone Girl. We love the moment where it's revealed that, you know, Amy's alive and driving through Nebraska or whatever. And it's like, that's, it's incredible. But not every book is needs to have that moment. Not every story is that kind of story. And when you start just sort of expecting every book that's called a mystery or a thriller to have that sort of moment, uh, then then you wind up with things that just feel really forced. and And that's no fun. No, yeah, I think it's no fun, and it and if and you can tell when something feels forced because it feels um, well, like yeah, like the the puppet masters come in or the editors come in and you know forcing the characters in a direction that doesn't make a lot of sense, mm -hmm. uh, and it's not the weird thing is that I think ultimately what I find most satisfying as a reader um, isn't really a plot twist but a character sort of twist. By that mm -hmm. I mean where we find out a deeper or nuanced or darker sort of part of a character in a moment um, that feels, you know, kind of surprising, maybe a little shocking or a little upsetting, but it's, it's kind of like we were prepared for it. Um, so it's not like, you know, a plot twist It's more of like a psychological twist, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely relate to that because it's like, that's so much more like that's so much deeper and, like powerful than just like kind of a surface level slick gimmicky. Oh, it turns out it was actually this person all along, you know, right. um, which, you know, and I, I love a good twisty story, of course, but like, it's just sometimes you read a book and it's like, there was one too many, they shouldn't have gone there. Um, right. and I think that's just, you know, that's kind of that type of story has had its moment for a long time and people have begun to expect it, but sometimes book doesn't need to have all that stuff that's having a moment right like it just can be a good story that like blows people away because it's good not because it's like everything else that came before it right oh absolutely yeah yeah so let's let's talk about queer mysteries a little bit um yes. we are both um very well read in this space i think yeah. and yeah. um i what do you think about like the way queer mysteries are really getting more space on shelves these days. Well, you know, of course I'm all for it. Yeah, well, yes. <laughs> and I'm obviously, but I'm excited. I'm excited for it. I think um, it's wonderful to see. Um, and I, I don't know what your experience is, but I, I feel like more people who, you know, don't identify as LGBTQ uh, plus are reading our books and, yes. and not, it's not like no big deal, you know, it's like, Oh, just, this is an interesting, you know, take on a historical mystery or a PI novel or whatever, you know, it's not like, um, Ooh, I'm reading, a, you know, a gay novel, right. right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, which is just, that's very reassuring. Um, and I do trust readers. I do think readers intelligent or intelligent and interested and curious I think most people who read, uh, well, I don't want to make broad claims, but in my experience that people who read regularly and read often tend to be people curious about the world. Yes. And so they are more open um, just by nature, um, especially the readers of, 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 of fiction, I think. Um, and so that's, you know, I think that's really good. I, I, I am, I do have, I'm worried. I, I worried, um, you know, that 
Um, I don't want this just to be in terms of the publishing industry, a phase. Um, right. It has happened before that it's been a bit of a phase and that phase went yep. away. Um, yep. you know, in the late, late eighties, early nineties, things were looking good. And then, um, they weren't, right. <laughs> so, um, I, you know, the Bush era, they weren't. And so I, you know, I really don't want, I want it, I want it to be a steady upward climb, um, uh, you know, to see, you know, writers like Cheryl Head reviewed in the New York Times. Right, or, yes. You know, Robin Geigel, great trans writer reviewed in the New York Times was just like, okay, you know, w this might be real, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yes, because um, we know that, like, you know, publishing is a business, obviously, and, like, yeah. being being a business, like, it's going to sort of follow the tides of of money and what is selling, but, like, stuff like books like Cheryl's and Robin's books being reviewed in the times, like that is kind of outside of that bubble of, of commerce. Like that's, um, that speaks more to like where society is going and not just where publishing is going, I think, which is good. Yes. Yeah. It feels more like a, a less like a trend more like, you know, a, a real change. Um, yes. So, I don't know. How are you feeling about it? Do you, what do you think? Yeah, I think it's, I think it's, it's really good. And uh, I, I too trust readers and I like people who want to read books are generally going to be more curious about the world. We just need to figure out a way that all of these amazing books that are being published by small presses on uh, indie presses can sort of get the same shelf space as books by the big five publishers or however many there are now big one at this point who knows they're all the same they're all the same company <laughs> one big monster with many legs <laughs> yeah exactly um but yeah but it's like it's it's also complicated because like my my series is you know featuring my queer private investigator is put out by um minotaur which is part of saint martin's um but it's not like that doesn't automatically mean that my book is front and center at Barnes and Noble either. Uh, so it's, it's hard to get people to pay attention to your book. Like when you look behind the curtains and realize that like, Oh, these aren't just like the books that the booksellers like, these are the, these are the books whose publishers paid to have them put on this table. Um, it's like, it's hard, it's complicated. And so like, you know, until queer writers are getting that big time marketing push too. Um, I feel like like that's when we'll know the publishing is serious. Yeah, I think about that all the time. About um, I do think about the money part of it and the marketing part of it um, because it does make such a difference. Um, it's not that quality writing isn't out there. It's not that there's you know it's that um, the marketing has to be there to get the message out. Yep. Um, and they're just sort of real grooves in the, in the publishing industry. And it feels often that you've, the things constantly follow, fall into the same grooves. Um, you know, and I think for a lot of LGBTQ writers, if you're not in one of those grooves, which are just very few of us are in them, you're <laughs> not going to get that exposure and you're, right. you know, I think, um, and exposure is, you know, it's representation. It's, it's what, you know, is ultimately going to make things stick around. So, um, and I think there's this constant sort of um, thing that I hear from publishers in the past. Uh, maybe this is changing. Even since my last book, I think I've heard this sort of change a bit. Um, and I'd be curious what you think about that. But um, I felt with my first book that, you know, the LGBTQ elements were interesting, but not something we really want to lead with majorly. Like, you mm -hmm. know, definitely not something I want to hide or tuck away. But, you know, I think it was more like historical mystery, 1940s um, right. concept. Um, and this time it felt very much like, no, we're going to put the LGBTQ up front. Like that is, that's really something we want to make sure in terms of marketing, we continue to uh, touch on and um, and it was more widely. It wasn't like you know. It, it certainly when we're marketing, dodging and burning to particular uh, you know publications or what have you, you, you were you were crafting it based on what you think they might be interested in. But I think this mm -hmm. time I felt more 
it's like widespread. Everyone's interested in this. Um, so <clears throat> maybe my point is that perhaps the industry is are seeing the LGBT books as viable money makers. Right. Uh, I'm hopeful of that. Now I don't know if that's true or not, but um, it's like one of those things. You ha- they have to believe it before it happens. They have to right. believe it might happen before it actually does happen. Right. Um, you know, it's like you have to be inspired. They have to be have that inspiration um, because it's not just going to happen unless they put up some marketing behind it. So exactly. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's definitely like it's it's an, it's interesting the way things can change even just over the course of a couple years, two years since uh, Dodging and Burning came out. Um, I think the one thing just in general about publishing that's really encouraging is that um, if you look at, you know, the young adult category, which is like mm. completely different than adult fiction in terms of representation and identities. And, you know, there are there are books about like basically any any identity that you can imagine and in young adult. And I love that. And what I really love is that um, readers who are teens right now reading those books are going to grow up and move on to adult books, expecting all books to be like that. And that's what's truly going to change things, I think, um, which is like really, really powerful and, and promising because like, you know, we haven't had that before. Like the, the moment that young adult is having with the, the broad diversity and representation, like that's something that hasn't happened before in the same way. So I'm really excited to see what that does ultimately to adult fiction as well. Yeah, I think that's really true. Um, and, uh, you know, I teach high school, so I, I can tell you, you both from the standpoint of, you know, what we teach in high school, um, not everyone, but definitely in terms of what the students are interested in reading, um, they read across difference all the time. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and they're, they don't see it as this big leap or this big ask of them, um, which you kind of, sometimes you'll hear from older readers like, oh, I only read, you know, male protagonists, right. um, <laughs> that kind of stuff. I only read that, you know, I'm like, oh, all right. And, <laughs> and I mean, you do, and you do in our particular genre, you hear that kind of stuff. Um, yeah. And, and uh, the news is, is that if the genre is going to continue to be viable and th- this is our audience, we, we got to change. Yes. Uh, and so uh, it looks like we might we might be changing. Um, you know, I think r- recently the uh, is it Best American um, uh, the, the collection? Yes, Best, Best American Mystery Stories, which I have a story in. I'm so excited about. Oh my God, that's great. Yes. Awesome. <laughs> uh, you know, I just, just that, that whole, that just warms that whole collection and everyone in it just that just really like, okay, this feel, I, I don't know what it was, but it just feels like a, ch- a change. You know? Yes. <laughs> yes, absolutely. A very, very positive one. Cause you can just see like how, you know, younger readers who have been spending the last few years reading all of these, you know, inclusive, stories full of representation of of all gender identities get to the the adult mystery section which has historically been a bit behind the trend as far as becoming modern and inclusive and you, you can just sort of imagine them like being like what the fuck is this like, <laughs> what are these people doing because <laughs> you know it's so like there are so many like you know, the, the very fact that this podcast, uh, Unlikable Female Characters, needs to exist um, <laughs> is like proof that like the, the mystery and thriller genre has some ways to go before, you know, even just like it's an equal footing between male and female characters, let alone characters, sexual orientation, let alone other gender identities. Like it's it's pretty wild. So that is definitely going to be exciting to see how that changes things about uh, publishing. Yeah, I, I really do think that, um, you know, it, it is sort of almost a, uh, a, a symbol of like where we need to go, you know, yes. and um, and we're, we're not at all, particularly our genre there yet. <laughs> no, no, no. There's still there's still a long way to go. Like it's, it's not, you know, I feel like every so often 
like generally I'm reading books that are written by, you know, friends or, you know, people who I know are, are trying to help change the shape of the genre. Sometimes you'll just like, you know, pick up something random and read it. And it's just like, seriously, yeah. <laughs> this oh, is still, yeah. are we still doing this? Um, yeah. yeah. Like in terms of the way that queer characters have historically been, you know, coded to be deviant or evil or weak or weird, like that kind of thing. If you, if you just like turn on the television you'll find, you know, shows being produced now, they're still doing that. And like, yeah. maybe they don't really understand why they're doing it. Or maybe it's because like, well, this is the way things have always been. So I guess we'll just keep doing it. But it's just like, come on, <laughs> look around, read the room. Oh, it's so true. I mean, now it's sort of like they won't overtly call a character gay, but they'll give that character sort of effeminate qualities. And that will be a sign that the character is, you know, deviant or evil, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. And so, you know, that I think, um, I mean, it's very true. I think you, one thing is like, one, not that we've been on airplanes very much recently, but <laughs> if you do look around at an airport and look at what people are reading, if they happen to actually be reading, right, and um, <laughs> not watching Netflix, <laughs> um, you'll notice it's a lot of the same stuff that you're seeing years ago. Yeah. And, um, <clears throat> the same writers and, you know, I'm not sort of necessarily knocking, I mean, I will knock some writer, or, you know, I think some writers need to change at the times, but some of them are just like, they got in that groove and that groove has been serving them and making them a lot of money. And, you know, they even may have sort of changed about the things they address, but their presence there is just always going to be the way the industry sort of functions is right. to continue to promote them, um, which you know, eventually they're going to have to step a little bit away to make room. Um, and so I'm, I'm hopeful that, that that might happen in the future, but it's still, there's still a lot of space being occupied by straight male, you know, authors slash, um, slash narrators slash, you know, characters. Yep. Um, <clears throat> For sure. So it's not that that's not a valid point of view, but you know, God, how many books do we need? Right. Like there are other points of view, attention world. Right. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned that you are a, a big film buff. So tell me, you know, real quick as we wrap up, like what's your favorite femme fatale character? Um, maybe from a movie that's not, you know, double indemnity or one of the ones that people always think of when they think of, uh, the femme fatale like what's a what's a favorite from sort of a more um off the wall choice oh boy um well i mean it, this do you want for something from the classic films or something more recent because i think my favorite and an influence for this book was the film heavenly creatures mm. uh, and and i think they are a kind of femme fatale. I, I adore that film. Um, yeah, I I, re I just recently like learned that that was like a true story about writer Anne Perry. Yeah, <laughs> I was like, yeah. oh my God, like it blew me away. Anyway, that was something I learned recently. I was like, wow. Yeah, I've actually read several books even about the real case. And I will say, I think the movie needs to be taken on its own Um just because I think the movie is so good um, and the real case is, you know, complex and it really right. happened. Um, I think the the movie is just, um, you know, I, I think that, that it, it does that thing where we do have these two um, young women who do a very terrible thing, um, but there's sort of an understanding for why they do that terrible thing. And so mm -hmm. I think, uh, now, you know, someone may, you know, say they're not classic film, they're not classic film fatals, but, um, you know, I think there is this movie, uh, I will suggest that is old called The Locket. Um, mm. and it is, uh, it's a fascinating structure a movie structurally because the main character who I can't recall her name right now, but she, uh, you know, she commits a crime, but it's also a. The, the structure is like a, 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 um, uh, like a, a, a flashback within a flashback. So, <laughs> and so one thing, like one thing that I loved about these classic film noirs is they always have crazy structures. Um, yes. 
and I think that's really interesting. Um, so this one has a particularly crazy structure. So go out and watch it, and you know you may not lo love it, but I loved it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there are some of the some of like the ones that are the most remarkable to me are the like kind of like weird, strange, not not the most popular ones. Have you seen um, the Strange Love of Martha Ivers? Oh, it's so good. Yeah, that would be another one. Yes, so good. It's so weird. Um, I I have long been obsessed with the idea of like writing writing a book of that story, like a, a a retelling of that. So yeah, that might be at some point a project on the on the horizon because like the movie is just so bizarre and compelling and um, yeah, that's a that's a good one for sure. Yeah, you realize from about when you go back and watch this, just how crazy how crazy they actually were to because they're trying to do something with a haze code in place and they yep. were kind of pushing the boundaries in other ways and so it, it, sometimes they're just bananas <laughs> yeah and it's like it's on some level it's like you know people had to be so much more inventive back then to right. to get this to actually pass all of the, the the censorship issues and like the the art that was created is like so much more interesting in a lot of ways because of that um yeah, I'm definitely, I'm right there with you. This has been a delightful conversation about uh, many different topics. So I'm really happy that you were able to to join me today. Thanks so much for having me on. This is just a blast. So everyone, you should definitely check out Savage Kind. It is brilliant and dark and twisty and just gorgeous. And like your writing is just like, ugh so jealous <laughs> gorgeous prose absolutely love it Thanks. so <laughs> uh that'll be a that'll be a good uh book to read during the the cold fall and winter while we were all staying in our homes and not going out and spreading the plague around <laughs> That's it for this episode of Unlikable Female Characters. Don't forget to subscribe, and you can also follow us on Twitter at UnlikableFCPod for updates, book recommendations, and angry feminist rants. Our website is unlikablefemalecharacters.com, and we're also on Instagram at unlikablefemalecharacters. Thanks for listening.